Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Goslin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. Well, how often do we get the chance to chat to someone who's been working in the same industry for 60 consecutive years and is still going strong? It's quite a landmark to reach, and in this day and age, it's probably unthinkable that it will ever happen again. But Dennis Malcolm, master distiller at Glen Grant Distillery, is someone whose life and work straddles different eras. Dennis started out at Glen Grant in Speyside as a 15-year-old apprentice cooper. He worked his way up through different roles in the distillery and is now Scotland's longest-serving distiller. I had the pleasure of chatting to Dennis about his life, his career and his thoughts on the momentous changes that have taken place in the whisky world over the course of his six decades. Apologies for the sometimes shaky audio connection with Dennis and Speyside, recorded remotely while we were still in lockdown, but stay with it for some great stories. I'm delighted to speak to you to kind of reflect on this incredible landmark in the Scotch whisky world, 60 years in the industry, 60 continuous years working in, in whisky. So, I mean, we've got quite a lot to cover uh, from the early days and recent times as well and looking to the future. But, you know, can can we just reflect on your origins in the industry? You know, you started out when you were 15, is that right? I jokingly say to people that I, I, I couldn't go on to further education because I was too thick, you know, so I had to, I had to do something with my hands. But... I um, I started when I was 15 uh, as an apprentice cooper at Glen Grant. And uh, <clears throat> it was quite simple for me to be there because uh, the owner at the time was Douglas McKessick. He was the last family owner. Uh, he he took over the distillery in 1931 when, when, the grand, when the son of the founder died, which was his grandfather. Well, Doug, Douglas McKessick sort of said to everyone that was employed here at the time, if, this is back in the 60s, the early 60s. If anyone employed by him, boys or girls were leaving school and there was a, a job at the distillery, they would get first first refusal, really, you know. So maybe in the 60s, you know, you'll understand in the 60s there was a boom and everything, you know, building, electricians, plumbers, you name it. Everything was really great. So I I always wanted to be a cooper to make a cask because I, I found it completely completely baffling how a, a cask could hold something in and there's no glue in it. I knew there's no glue. So I, and it was in the liquid, it holds us thinner than water. So uh, I wanted to be a cooper anyway. So I started off my apprenticeship in 1961, 3rd of April 61 at Glen Grant, set my time and made casks, hauled casks, did it in about casks. And then I moved on to production because I wanted to know how spirit was made. So I spent uh, six years doing that. I was, I was quite interested in, in how distillers run at the time. And if I'm honest enough now, uh, I used to say, I want to run a distillery myself, you know, do it myself. You know, after knowing how to make cars, which is important, and also all the production methods, you're quite, when you're young, you, you're, you're quite naive, really, in a way you think I can run the world, you know. So I I, I was promoted to... Uh, Actually, a production manager, I called them an operating brewer at the time. You reported to the manager and you run the distillery. That was only 26 then. And it was a big step for me, but I didn't see it that way because I was just a young boy. I was just a young boy in the family there. And other guys who were running a distillery 
are twice my age, you know, and maybe almost three times my age, they had hundreds of years of experience. So with, with my energy and their experience, I, I, I couldn't fail, you know. It was unbelievable, you know. So I I run Glen Grant as a production brewer until 1979. And then I was offered the, the manager's job at Glenlivet, B. Glenlivet. And the reason for that was because Glenlivet and Glen Grant were the same company. Um, they merged in 1972 and they, they had a, they were called the Glenlivet Distillers. And that was Glenlivet, Glen Grant, Longbourn, Ben Drake, and Capardonic Distilleries. So I, I was up there for. Four years. Uh, I thought I'd be there for the rest of my life, but I was there for four years. And then in, 19, in 1970, time when I moved up there, the company was bought over by Seagram's. And Seagram's then owned Shivers Brothers, which was Strathila Glen Keith, Altma Bay and Brival. They, they couldn't control the distillery because of the takeover for maybe four years, I think it was. And in 1983, they asked if I'd move back to Glen Grant. And uh, at the time, I thought, oh, this is a sideways move. But the production director, Stuart McBain, said, no, I have a good reason for it, Dennis. I want to, to blend all the managers and experience together and get them sort of able to do any disability. So when I moved there, they moved someone else into my job at Glenlivet. I'm a shivers person. And it was a good way of blending everyone together, the manager together. So I was there until 92. And then... They, they were looking for a, a general manager to run all the distilleries, the nine distilleries, the, the animal feed plant, the gin plant, and, and three farms, <laughs> which I didn't know anything about. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to get that job and did that to 99. Uh, at the end of 99, the, there was a company called uh, Pernod took over the company, you know, and they, they all wanted their own management in there, so I stayed on as a a brand ambassador looking after, you know, VIPs and uh, future buyers and stuff like that. But that's not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a production man all my life, you know, and uh, but I, I did it. And then I had a, an offer of a job up at Balmenich Distillery uh, from the house. And the way I got that was that Graham Hutchin, who's the, the group operations director for Eddington, he was the projects engineer based at Shaila, uh, running a, when I was running a Shivers distillery, so I knew him quite well. He was a very competent young guy. And he asked me to go up there and, and run Balmenich for him when they bought it. And I did it for two reasons. I, I wanted to walk into production hands-on, and, and I think Graham knew that as well. And secondly, my, my wife's great-grandmother was, was Jeannie McGregor, who was the daughter of the, the founder of, of Balmenich. So it was basically going back to family tree, you know. So uh, it was good because it was hands-on and the right And if you, if you wanted to do something, it was like when I started at a distillery, if you wanted to move a car, you had to push it, you know. There's no forklifts around to push it. You demanded push it. Or if you wanted it, you demanded left it. Balmenich was the very same. If you wanted to turn steam on, you to go and open the valve, you would have shut it, and everyone was hard. It's great. And then Shivers took over all at the Mech, and they were forced to sell one of their distilleries, and that was the one that chose to Glen Grant, and uh, Campari bought it. And uh, they asked me to go, if I would go back and head up the distillery, wherever I was running for them in Scotland, which... Obviously, I was going not to say because I was, I was born on site, you know. 
and a big part of my life, biggest part of my life was here. So my, my heart mostly Glenn Grants. I didn't need to think about it, I just did yes right away. And that was a takeover that I saw very different because we've been taking over before. When big companies take over companies, they, they put in their management and they put in their systems to incorporate that new business they brought into their organization. Well, Grupo Compare did that as well, but they saw value and the of the people and they left us to it, you know. So I think that was a fantastic thing. They, they put people, people to the plan and the operations and the people they had. So it was good. And that was me until, until now. <laughs> and having Campari as the owner was fantastic because I remember back in the mid-70s, um, Glenn Grant was launched by a guy called Armando, Armando Giovannetti uh, in the early 60s. I mean, 19, about 1960, he took some cases over to Italy and uh, tried to sell the line. So he was very successful. And uh, Ernest McKessick's son-in-law, Hugh Medcalf, who finished his time at McCann, actually, he became the export. Boy, he, he pushed the sales. You know, he was a guy who really... Glenn Grant shine in Italy, and we were selling almost half a million cases a year to one country, you know. It was huge. And when the group of Campari bought it, I thought that was great because we were the, sort of the dominant malt in Italy, you know, the, the household name of a malt in Italy. Campari are, a, are Italian people are very passionate, you know, and they're very family oriented, I've noticed. So it was a very good thing for Glengarn to be taken over by them. So since then, since they took over, I've spent I spent millions of their money. You know, firstly putting in hot water recovery systems for the environment, then purchasing our own warehouses, revamping them, filling them. Then we built our own boarding hall in twenty under twenty fourteen, and bottled everything on site. So. They've really showed or proved to, to me and everyone that they were committed behind this brand of Glen Grant, which is fantastic. It, it seems like you've you've been at the point maybe before of stepping back from the industry, uh, maybe contemplating retirement, but there's always been something to kind of keep you going and lure you back in. Is that the way you see it? I'm not a good speller, so I don't think I could spell retirement. I don't think... <laughs> Richard, it's never been a job to me. It's it's just been a way of life, you know. And, you know, when everyone has a birthday, they think, oh, fantastic, it's my birthday next year, you know. Well, I have a couple of birthdays, and, and I don't like my actual birth birthday because that makes me a year older. I like my birthday with Glenn Grant because I'm a year longer there. That's all it is. It's not a year older, it's a year longer, so... Uh, it's just a it's just a way of life, really. It must have been great, though, for you, obviously, to come back to Glen Grant at that point and see that there was a kind of new lease of life for the distillery. It uh, it was getting that investment and and getting that love and attention, I suppose, that maybe it had been lacking slightly. Yes, because when you remember a big company like that, there's, they they'd whittled it down to five people. There's only five operators running that distillery, and that distillery was a 
It's still a big distillery, six million litres plus a year. That's about a thousand barrels a week. And only five operators could be hugely automated. Nowadays, we have everybody there of our own engineers, electricians, people who do the bottling, run the distillery. We have 27 people there. So it really grew the business again, you know. The, the spirit character has always been consistent. Is that right? It's, it's, it's always been a lighter spirit, a lot of reflux coming off these fairly curiously shaped stills, but that's that's always been a consistent part of Glen Grant's character. Yeah, I say that's, that's the DNA of Glen Grant. And, you know, I can tell you that these purifiers were were installed around 1873, about the year after the young major took over the distillery. He was 25 when he took it over from his father. And he wanted to he wanted to make his mark on the distillery like his father did. So he, he immediately went about doubling the plant and also changing the style you know something i would never do is drastic change like that you know pu adding purifiers to the wash under the spirits but you're right it made it made the spirit much more lighter and fruitier and estuary because light vapors rise and the stills at glen grant are fairly tall so they're not as tall as Glenmorangie ones but they're, they're close to it and they go over into the condenser, be condensed. Then he popped in purifiers between the neck of the wash still and spirit still and the and the condenser. So when the vapors went in midway, you run cold water over the head of it all the time. It doesn't touch the vapor. So when the light vapor rises, hits a cold head, the heavier ones reflux back into the still, and only the lighter, purer ones go over. So that DNA has been there since eighteen seventy three. And for the last 60 years that I've been there, it's never changed. You know, I'm a great believer in protecting the DNA and having consistent quality, you know. Do you think that character was what made it successful in the Italian market, especially? Was 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 that the kind of flavor profile that they were looking for? Yeah, they wanted they wanted they wanted a hard they had a hard request because they wanted a five-year-old single malt, you know. You know, single malts have got to be aged and, and you still have to state the age claim on them. You can't you can put an older stuff, but you can't put in younger. They wanted a five-year-old. And you know something, to get a five-year-old, it's such a high quality, it's not easy because you, you, it's just it's just like a young child at school, you know, you've just started school and, and it's young, young spirit at that, but we, we have a policy that we haven't changed, and that is we use a cask three times. So we're using first full bourbons, first full sherries, but it's mostly bourbons, three times. So five years along the line, you're dumping it and filling it the bottles in. The next five years, the, th the third five years, 15 years, and that cask goes out with the system completely. It goes away for blending, for using for blending purposes, you know. So they like that light, delicate, fruity blend grant, you know. It seems to suit their palate. Possibly because it's such a warm country as well, you know. Yeah, I suppose it's suitable for uh, maybe getting some ice into it or, or in a longer drink as well. That's correct. It's a longer drink, and uh, they do they do add they, they do add ice and some soda into it from time to time. So we get a long drink. What what can you tell me about Capardonich, uh, Dennis, in terms of its its uh, its creation? It was it was always meant to be like an exact replica of Glen Grant, wasn't it? With the with the new make spirit being piped across the road, uh, but despite that uh, ambition of of, of creating a, a plant which was an exact replica, the the spirit was never quite the same, was it? No, you're dead right there. You you've got it in one. You know your spirits are right because you know a lot of people say you know in 1898 you know the major 
the young major who took over in 1873 doubled it. And then, strangely enough, 100 years later, 1973, I doubled it again. You know, we knocked down the drum Maltons, we moved our Maltons, and we put in our stills in there. So I doubled it again. But in 1898, the major saw that he needed to expand again, but he, he didn't have much room because the Langrons tucked in a little sort of valley there, you know, it's pretty hemmed in with the valley. So they built Kappadonich, and as you say, they built the same style, wooden fermenters, pot stills, coal-fired, um, purifiers, everything was the same. Porches, mill for grinding, same water, same malted barley, same management that run it, so everything was the same, you know. And uh, then they pumped it, as you say, up to Glen Grant, where there was one filling store, up a line, and uh, mixed it all. And it closed in 1901, and it never really, it never opened again to 1965. Now, when I speak to people over there now, they say, oh, there's a world recession then in, in 1901. I says, well, I, I, I believe that as well, but not right through to 1965. You know, <laughs> that's, a, that's too long for a world recession. So I tend to agree with you. Everything being the same, the only difference is the shape of the stills and the spirit was slightly different. So okay. it, it became, yeah, and if you look at any of old Capardonach, it has been bottled way back. It's, it's a different animal altogether from Glen Grant, you know. We've done some bottlings recently of Capardonach and I mean, I have to say, they've been absolutely spectacular as well. Aye, they are unique. And you know what we did when we when we started Linger in Cappadonach, it was which we called a Cappadonach, Cappadobarmeach after the, the, the deep or the Sabbath well, where the, most of the water comes for production there, you see. That's why we called it Cappadonach. But it when we started it, we waited till it was five years old, like the Italian, one for the Italy, and we bottled it then, you know, and it just didn't measure up to Glen Grant, you know. And it, it is a different character as well from Glen Grant. Interesting. I was I was asked to ask you if you know uh, my 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 colleague on the tasting panel at the society, Robin Lang, the whiskey bard we call him, and he's, he wrote a song: "Looms as looms, the world ruined, but rough as looms as buggers." You know that one? I know he didn't write it for me. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> it was based on a quote from uh, I don't know if I can say the name properly, but Biawa Makalaga. Oh, Byway Makalaga, yes, you've got it right. Byway Makalaga is a wee boy from South Africa. The, the major, the young major spent most of his life safari and game hunting in South Africa and, and India and all these places. But in 1898, he, he was in South Africa and he came across this little African village on fire that had been fighting and setting fire to it. And there's two wee boys walking along the road, lost, so... The major took them home, him and his friend. His friend took the other one. He took Byway home, and they, they guessed his age. He was about eight, they thought. Now, Byway came, they picked him up in 1898, and he was eight. He died in 1972, and the major died in 1931. So he was looked after by us, you know. And they called him Byway because, we always say because they found him by the way. But Byawa in, in South African meaning is stolen, you know, because he they'd taken the child, you know. And Makalanga is an area in Matabili land, so uh, it, it did represent them. And when the major died, he left notice to, to the Zori that Byway 
His meals were paid in the local hotel down the end of the lane from Glen at the Seashore Hotel till he died. And we looked after and supplied his power and his coal for his fires and looked after him. So it's quite a character, you know. And so was so so Robin Lang, of course. He's quite a character. But that's but that's the story he tells about the you know the locals were like <laughs> that came from Glen Grant to Capadonic across the road and then getting a wee sample of the new make for the bottles. That's right. Well, he stayed overnight when he was doing a bit of canoeing thing down the river Spade, the Spirit of Space Age Whiskey Festival. And I think he fell in a lot more times than he was, <laughs> he was, was paddling. <laughs> but it's, it sounds like a story from a, a, a bygone era, but, you know, it's it's still relative recent history, as you say. By the way, was alive until 1972. Uh, That's but correct. it feels like something you would have read about from a Victorian journal. That's correct, but he, he was very well respected and liked in Rothes, you know. Um, everyone knew him, and he was a fanatical football supporter, you know. And Rothes didn't do that well, but he always supported Rothes. He played for them in goal for a while, apparently. And uh, when he died, he he left his his total belongings to him. I think it was about eighteen pounds sixty or seventy in today's value. He left it all to the Rothes Social Club Football Club. Fantastic, but uh, I mean. For me, Glen Grant has a very different feel as a distillery. Like I mentioned, I had a brief visit there, but it, you know, even just that gave me an impression that it was it was a totally different experience. The gardens are are incredible, and uh, it's it, it's got that kind of lush bucolic, if I can use that word, feel about it. It's 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 really something different within the world of Scotch whisky distilleries. Yeah, well, we're a single malt. Like Glenfiddich, Glen Farkless, Glen Morgy, like Glen, Glen everything, you know. Um, but I say to people, we're not just a single malt by name. Oh, that's Glen Grant, that's Glenfiddich, that's Glen Morgy, you know. We are a distillery with a history and a heritage, you know. We we have a business centre, we have a coffee shop, we have a bottling hall, we do everything here. We're 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 totally different, aren't we? I always say. And I, I shouldn't tell you too much. You should really come and see it later on in the year. You know that's that's the right way to do it. But the gardens, the gardens are lovely because Shivers did spend a lot of money. Uh, I think it was nineteen seventy eight. They spent about eight hundred thousand pounds revamping the gardens, taking them back to the the way they were. But prior to that, in the early seventies, I I used to put some of the guys up just to fly more. You know, one is. Dogs cut on fly mower machines. Fly mower a whole path all the way up through the orchard, up to the to the rocky gorge where the waterfalls were. That's where the major had built a, a safe into the rocks, and he popped these the drums that he liked best in there. So when he was dining and dining his guests in the mansion house, which is no longer there now, it was knocked down. He would walk them through the distillery, up through the garden, stop at the safe, give them a wee refreshment, and then, and then carry on back. So I started that again back in the early 70s, just by a grassy, a thin grassy path. And we did we did sort of get a bit better at it because we got a bit of money. The, the, the owner, Douglas McKesson, used to walk his dogs up here every day and he thought we were doing a good job, you know, and we got money to buy a little ride on tractor, you know. So we cut the grass underneath all the trees, the apples, the plums, the pears and all that. And if you look at it, if you've been, I haven't been up to Richard, Richard, the trees are very low with the branches coming out, you know, like a bush, you know, maybe up about four feet and then bush out. 
and it was difficult to cut under the branches with the tractor because you, you bump your head on it and the boys were doing that. So a few of the trees were a few of the trees were a bit leaning over. And I thought, ah, right, bump on our heads. Let's cut them down, guys, and make it easier for you. And uh, we did that, made a tidy job and I went and got it done. And uh, the owner, Douglas McKessick, the major, came into my office one morning and he said, Dennis, I wonder if you could do me a favour. I said, no, whatever, I can, he owned the place. <laughs> and I said, oh, sure, sir. And he said, could you get me maybe a dozen stakes, about 18 inches long, sharp on one end, and paint the top two three inches red, you see? And I said, oh, certainly. When do you want to fly? Oh, no, hurry. I said, oh, when you buck in. He used to come in every second day, you know, maybe for a half day. So I'll be on Wednesday, so uh, I got them all ready, you see? And into the office he came. He says, oh, is this mine? I says, oh, that's good. And the reason he came into my office every day he came is he had a nose of the new spirit to see that it was still the same. He was very hands-on, you know, and he also had a look at the, the malted barley that was just made over in the drum maltings. You know, he was he was very, very keen to know everything about the plant and even more keen to know about the people because the first thing he'd say was, how's things today, Dennis? And I'd start saying, oh, the Martians good, the stills, they go and write over with this problem. No, 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 no. What I mean is, how are the people? How are the men? So I had to tell him, say, George's wife had a baby and he wanted to know the name of the baby and all that stuff. And he'd always remember because when he walked around to the store a week or two later, he'd ask him how the baby was, you know. Amazing people skill, you know. So I got his sticks for him, you see. And then he said to me, could you, have you got a hammer? And I says, oh, I've got a hammer. Oh, a fairly heavy one. I says, I oh, okay, I'll go and get one. I popped into Cooper's to come back out. And he says, let's go for a walk. I says, okay. So we, he walked me up towards the Cullen Water Dam heading for the gardens. And I thought, oh, no. So I knew it was coming, you know. And, and he says, just pop a stake in here, there, there. Just, just where I had chopped down the trees, you see. And he says, now what I'd like you to do, Dennis, is Go down to the garden centre in Fogelberg and pick a place of trees and plant them. And, you know, these trees were planted there 100 years before I came here, he says. So my predecessors left them for us to get the benefit of. And I, I don't mind you cutting some down, he says, but always replace them with another tree or two trees. And, you know, Richard, that's the most polite verbal warning I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that's man management skills. Certainly was, and you know something, it was a great idea because all my life I walk up there and I see that trees and I remember that. <laughs> I never I've, I meant to ask on behalf of my colleague John McShane as well, he was wondering is, if, the, if the accommodation facilities still exist at Glen Grant. Yes, they are. We, the, we've got, when we revamped the visitor centre in 2008, the coaching house for the owner, it was where he kept his horses and his ponies and his carts. And then he eventually had his Rolls Royce and his chauffeur stayed there. 2008, I revamped it. I got some money from Campari, half, oh, half a million pounds, really. And we revamped it into a new centre. And we just had the visitor attraction downstairs. And upstairs was completely wasted. So we turned it into corporate hospitality. So there's there's two there's two ensuite rooms up there. And there's a lounge up there and a wee kitchen up there. So they use that for, for VIPs, visitors, special visitors. And there's nothing better than saying... I actually slept on site at Glenmorant, you know. That sounds great. And I'm sure I think John might be champing at the bit to get back up there as well. It, it makes it more relaxed and you don't have to rush around. You know, you can just pop into the 
accommodation here. You're you're on site, you know, and uh, you're looked after well. Brilliant. So I mean, it's very rare to have such such a length of experience in in one industry like you have, Dennis. And it, I think it gives you a, a pretty unique perspective on the way that the whiskey world has developed and changed over these 60 years. So, I mean, it, it feels fairly obvious for me, but I'd, I'd really like to ask about your reflections on the industry. Maybe, you know, some of the most remarkable changes you've seen uh, in the span of your career. Well, the, the, the basic ones I've seen, as you know, the pencil went to a computer. <laughs> and and, and I, I modernised that when I get the chance. I automated, I automated the pencil sharpener. That's my automation. And there was no fourth latch when I started. You know, you had, to, you had to push everything, lift everything, and it was teamwork all the time. Everything was hand-operated. And then gradually automation came in. And do you know something? I encouraged the automation, you know, because it was just another tool for the men to do their job. And it couldn't be better for consistent quality. Because once you've been through the process and you set the parameters, that computer holds it there, doesn't lose it. And I say it's checking every millisecond where the operator before was not. I'm not saying the operator didn't do a good job because you need the experienced operator. But you need him there to do the right thing when something doesn't work. You know, computers stop working as well. So they need to know the basics and how to run the distillery in case something does go wrong. But Computers are great, and the changes I've seen in the industry was when I started there, there was there was no females there at all. You know, working diversity was thinking about now, and there's no females there. And then eventually, Hugh Medcalf, when he got busy and his export director role, he got a, a, a clerk or a PA to help. And now, if you go to Glenland, you've got a manager for the visitor center and three, four girls and a couple of guys. We've got Greg Stables, who's a production manager, director, and there's a quality manager who's a lady. She's got a, an assistant, another girl. We have a financial controller as a, as a lady. We have got a, a planner for the bottling hall, a lady, you know. So we're pretty well balanced now, you know. With, with, no, with no, no 15-year-olds working in the in the distillery anymore. No, no, no. The thing is, they come. They all come. They all come after they've been to further education or maybe the university, and and they're, they're much cleverer now. But I always say to people, you know, I feel sorry for them when they start, even though they've been to uni and come back with huge qualifications, which is great, you know. And um, they've got to go into that control room. And running the computers and watching the screens is second nature to them. But they've then to understand the whole process from the malted barley coming in to be ground and mashed and fermented and distilled. And if they understand what to do if something goes wrong and how to correct things, you know, they are help. The computers help them. So I I do feel for them then because it takes it it's it's a it's a fair undertaking, you know, to, to understand everything quickly like that, whereby I spent five years seven times at Cooper, then six years on the production, all this process of production, then went into management. So, it's hard to imagine that 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 level of apprenticeship, not just in learning to be a Cooper in the first place, but you know, then experiencing all the different aspects of working across the different areas of the distillery. That, I mean, that that's also something that's. 
probably never going to happen again. Do you think? No, I don't think so. I I had I had a, an accelerated sort of 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 um, career because I was as young as I was twenty six, and I'd had these younger older guys who had experience helping me. So <clears throat> I was always said, you know, be a good listener, you know, <laughs> and don't judge, and and you learn more that way. And it was really good. It was for my benefit, you know, but. I, I'm on record by saying, you know, Brian Higgs, who used to be the production director for all the Diageos, uh, well, he had a meeting at, we're a meeting at Rothus with everyone there, and the owners of Campari were over as well, Luca Garavoli, and we had a big meeting, it was to, to open up the, the, the visitor centre and that, and Brian was there, and Luca said to him, um, I said to him, Brian's the director for all the Diageos cells, and I've just got one now, you see. And Lucas said to him, name them, you know, and Brian started naming them, he'd forgot one, and I told him, and he says, oh, shut up, Malcolm, you know, but he, he named them, no problem, I, I great respect for Brian Higgs, and Lucas said to me, you did well as well, so, and I says, no, I failed, and what I wanted to do, I didn't want to just run Glen Grant, I didn't want to just run Shivers still. And when I was young, I wanted to run the whole industry. <laughs> so, so it's funny when you're young, you know, I wanted to run the whole industry and, and Brian Higgs was one of these people who was, was looking after about 30-odd stories at that time. And I thought the, 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 the diversity of all that was fantastic, you know. There's a lot to be said for the confidence of youth. I know, I know. But when you get older, you think, I shouldn't have thought about that. (laughs) You're talking about uh, automation, increased consistency uh, now in production, computerisation, obviously. I suppose there's more of a scientific approach to whiskey making now. But how do you think that's affected the kind of day-to-day culture of the distillery and also the whiskey? Uh, Do you see changes there? No, I don't. I don't see any changes in the first case because you, you, you've got your profile, you've got your DNA, and you set it into your computer, and that's it, done and dusted. The computer is is an aid to the to the operator because it's monitoring all the time, so it'll the operator go and supervise and check things over, you know, observing things all the time and watching things. And there's still as many people employed in the industry though. Before we had maybe when I went to Glenlivet. In 1979, I had 58 people at Glengarnt, 5'8", looking after the, the cooperage, the maltings, and, and the distillery. It was a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of hands-on. Now, there are still as many people needed for the industry, but there's less people running, the actual running a distillery. The distilleries can produce more, so you're employing more coopers, you're buying more casks, there's more haulage, there's more animal feeds being processed, there's, there's, there's more barley being grown, the farmers are doing more. So it's an industry that the numbers of people in it are still fairly constant, but the, the roles have changed, you know, it's more support in the to the ones that are making it, you know. And, and culturally, do you see uh, changes in, in your decades in terms of the culture within the industry? Yeah, well, uh, in a way, um, down at Glen Grant, they were quite fortunate because the guys and girls there have stayed a long time. You know, I think I maybe try and beat my record, you know. But I do see a lot of people, there's more opportunities now, there's more distilleries there now. And the younger ones coming in, you know, a graduate to me is like a sponge, you know, because I've had graduates working for me, they're brilliant. They're like a sponge, they, they just soak up the information and they move on and do something else, you know, that they never forget. You know, where Brian, me, I had to keep doing it all the time to remember how to do it. The graduates are 
they're clever and they can do that. And they get a bit bored doing a repetitive job because the selling is quite repetitive because there's, there's not much change being involved there. The changes in, in the distilling world is more about different types of casks and blending different ones together to give you different sort of flavour profiles for different expressions now, you know, that's, a, that's exciting. Bit about it. What about looking to the future then, Dennis? Where where do you see the industry moving to uh, in the future? Well, I, I think the industry is going to keep growing because I notice a lot, when I go to shows that I notice a lot of the younger people don't want just just a name for a malt to say, oh, I'd like that one, I like that one, because they know the name. They now want to know how it was made, how long it's fermented for, what's your cut points. They're really inquisitive and it makes them more they're more knowledgeable, you know, and they, and, and you it's fantastic when they do that because I I love when I get somebody like that really interested in, in, in how it's made because that's that's the secret of it, you know. There's definitely a demand for that kind of in-depth knowledge when we find that, especially with our members. Yeah, people call, some people in the industry call them monarchs, but I think they're really, really interested. And you can tell. You know, Richard, if you're showing someone, a group of people around a distillery, and, and you, you're doing the speaking, and they're just walking behind you nodding, I just feel I'm wasting my time. See, when they start questioning me, you know, and, and if I answer, the ones that the ones that I answer, you know, I don't want to tell them exact striking temperatures, you know. I'll say, oh, it's about 65, and then I'll move on to someone else, and then that person goes back and says, no, 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 you said 65. Is it 65, 1, 2, or 6, or whatever, point six? You know, I, I love it when they do that, because that means... They're really interested. Reflecting on 60 years, Dennis, any any specific highlights? I mean, there, there must have been many, many over the years. But any specific highlights that stand out for you? Ah, uh, there's, there's there's been there's been there's been loads, and and the, the one that I I've had a few in, and building a bottling hole and bottling everything on site and making you completely control. You're completely in control from the barley right through to the bottle. So you're standing there as transparent as can be. You cannot blame. The bottlers for doing something wrong, or the maltsters for doing something wrong, or the distiller for doing something wrong. You are in complete control, but it's a sense of pride as well to make sure that it's done consistently to the high standard all the time. And then when Campari took over, they they recognised the, the skills of the staff, you know, and and the experience that they had, and left us to get on with it. And also, the door opened to create new expressions because. In the big company before, Shivers owned it before, it was a production unit and they, they made enough just to keep the Italian five-year-old going. The rest was all laid down and the majority went down to Shivers Regal Blend because it was needed. So it was good for the distillery because it kept them going at full production, but it wasn't growing the brand worldwide, you know. It was shrinking it actually because when Capari took over, we had five-year-olds for Italy. We had some non-age which is five, between five and seven years old, non-age statement. And we sold about 3,000 bottles a year in the business center, and that was it. Now, since Capari took over, I've had a free reign. We've got a we've got five for Italy. We've got the Arboralis, for, which is a young one for for uh, marking 180 years and selling last year. We've got 10, we've got 12, we've got 15, we've got 18. They are all standard expressions. And in between that, we do variables from time to time. You know, we do single cask for selling, selling in the visitor centre. I did a decades for my 50 years in the industry 
and then we did a 170th anniversary when the distillery was 170 years old. So we did different things like that. So we have the freedom to, a bit like a yacht, you know, when the wind blows, you can go with it. You just set the sail to go that way. And what, what else do you have planned to mark the 60th uh, anniversary of, of working in the industry? <laughs> I, I think I'm just pleased that I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah. no, the, 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 we are going to we are going to launch later on in the fourth quarter of the year uh, a 60 year old but um, that's about as far as it's gone just now it's still in the preparation you know there's somebody asked me not long ago what makes you pick the cask you know so we're a few 60 year olds and I always say whiskies are like people you know the stories are like people they're all different and single malts are the very same they're like people as well and some of the stories with single malts I'll appreciate for a lot of years, and then they might get about 25 or 30 years old and they plateau off, just like people, you know, like football players especially. When they get to about 30s, they, they've reached their peak and they, they go into management or coaching. But some of the stories carry on, and Glen Grant is unbelievable. It's kept on increasing in quality all the way right up to 50, 60 years. So I look at all these costs and the longer you're in that cask, your liquid, it does take on more aroma from and flavours from the wood, you know. And the one that I've selected, uh, you can hardly detect any at all. So I, I prefer it when I'm not too okay or woody, you know, because most people expect to get that, you know, at that age, you know. That sounds absolutely tremendous. What a, what a, great, what a great thing to have for your 60th year. Yeah, be good, be good. And I stopped joking. I used to joke when I was younger to them, and they say, "What's going to happen to you when you, when you, when you, when you go off the face of the earth?" I says, "Well, I, I don't want to be buried in a box, and I don't want to be burnt because I might explode." <laughs> I says, oh, "What, are, what are you going to do then? We can't keep you." I says, "No, just pop me into a sherry butt and roll me in, and the ones that don't like me can give it a kick." <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, what? Any plans at this point, Dennis? I mean, you, you said you'd kind of flirted with retirement previously, but you're still still going strong. Uh, any any ideas? I'm I'm, I'm still I'm still quite busy. Capari are keeping me busy as well too. You know, we we new expressions and and this year alone we we launched. No, sorry, last year I forgot we've lost a year really. You know, it's a shame. Mm. Last year we launched Arvanalis, which was to to, to mark 100 years. And so I launched that in Australia, and then I had to do. Um, video conferencing like this for India when I went to different countries so there's a lot of that going on just now and I've been training a lot of the, the sales and marketing people all over the, the, the company you know because I think it's important I think it's more important that when they sell it they come to the distillery and get that induction there you know walk around it, speak to the people speak to the operator not just list, don't just believe me speak to the operator you know because these guys are, are very, very conscientious and proud about what they do as well. So I'll, um, I, I don't know what I'd do. I don't know what my life would be. You know, people say retire and play golf. Can I, I'm very much a one-horse jockey, so I don't know what to do. You know? I think it's everyone's dream to not think about retirement. I've always felt that if you were working with people and they were counting to the days till, till they could retire, then they were in the wrong job. Ah, oh, you are actually, you know, and, and I've, I've got twin boys, grandchildren, they're 18 and they're, they're heading for uni this year, you know, we've missed them more of the time and 
And my daughter says, oh, it'd be nice if we do this, nice if we do that. And I says, no, let them pick what they want to do. And if they find it's not right and they're not happy, they're not captive there. Get them to pick something that they're really happy with. And if they're happy doing it, they'll enjoy it. And it's not a job, it's it's a lifestyle. And that's what well, it's all about. You're a fantastic example of that, Dennis. Uh, if we could start a job at the age of 15 and still be as enthusiastic about it, all these years later, then that's, that's a good way to go. Compare said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I, said, I don't want to do any more than I'm doing just now. I want you guys to dominate the world with this brand called Glengarch. Dennis, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Richard. And, and as I say, if you can get up into Glen Grant and later on the year or something like that, be in touch. The one and only Dennis Malcolm, master distiller at Glen Grant and now officially Scotland's longest serving distiller. You can read more about Dennis and his career in the June issue of Unfiltered Magazine, available at smws.com, where there is a host of other great whiskey stories for your reading pleasure. Until the next time, cheers. <laughs>